Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. And today I'm really excited to be taking you on a journey of discovery of human potential that could be mistaken for science fiction. So today's guest is Scott Carney. He's a repeat guest. I had him on for his book, What Doesn't Kill Us, about the Iceman, Wim Hof, and his ability to control what had previously been thought to be just autonomic functions, his immune system, his body core temperature. And it was all about um, basically how we, we live in a world where we can be comfortable and avoid stress, physical stressors on our body like heat and cold and, and sharp edges and discomfort, and how that is actually making us weak and sick. And in his new book, The Wedge, he takes this concept a whole lot farther. He points out at the beginning that humans love comfort to the point of absurdity and wonders now, if we didn't, don't just look at cold exposure, but heat and sensory deprivation and flotation tanks and the effects of drugs like MDMA or ayahuasca on how we function or the experience of juggling kettlebells, these giant heavy lumps of, of iron, I guess, some, some metal um, that could you know break your toe or kill you if you weren't careful. The experience of almost redlining in a Latvian sauna, and even uh, spending five days eating nothing but potatoes to reset his taste buds that have been hijacked by a world set on making us comfortable in our mouths all the time. And all this is to explore what Scott Carney calls the wedge, which essentially is a place of choice between a stimulus and our response. Now, I work with people all the time as a health coach who have trouble choosing their response to a stimulus, whether it's the smell of banana bread baking or staying in warm bed instead of getting up and going for your morning walk or jog, or situations in which social pressure get people to do things that, that sabotage their long-term goals. So I work on a behavioral and emotional and sensational level to help people become tolerant of the forces that want them to do something, that they, or that they're conditioned to respond to in a certain way, and to create the space for them to make other choices. And Scott Carney in The Wedge is taking this to a whole other level of physiology. And he argues that we can control not just whether we pick up the cookie or not, but the very functioning of our immune system, our body's temperature regulation system, the um, amount of carbon dioxide that we can tolerate before we go into an anxiety state and the potential for human growth uh, as mediated by the environmental stressors that we have as a civilization uh, systematically tried to remove from our lives is really, really interesting in terms of how we can become authentic, fully realized human beings and to be happier and healthier. So a couple of announcements before we get to it. Uh, speaking of coaching, I've got a couple of slots available for private clients, and I still have pay from the heart pandemic pricing, which means that you can become a private one-on-one -on -one client of mine for unlimited laser coaching for a year for as low as $83 a month. And you can find out all about that at plantyourself.com laser. 
I've also started a group coaching uh, program. We meet Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Eastern Time. And we've had two sessions so far, and I think it's been really great. Uh, I'm waiting. I don't like to get, like, testimonials from people who've just, you know, had their first session because, you know, everyone can be excited for a little while and do good. But uh, I want to I give it a few months to see whether it really has a lasting effect. So I'm not going to, you know, t throw out some testimonials. But I will say it appears to be working really well. And the cost there, uh, I'm asking for $50 a month as a edge of sustainable uh, contribution. But it's also pay from the heart. And so the, I'm setting the minimum at $15 a month. If you'd like to sign up for that, I don't have any sort of sales material on it. Um, just what I told you today. If that's enough for you to give it a try, check out sicktofit.com slash coaching. All right. So let's talk about the wedge without further ado. Scott Carney, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. It's been a while. Thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. So you're, we were going to talk before um, your book, your new book, The Wedge, was published. I guess it just came out like what, a couple months ago. Uh, uh, yeah, April fourteenth, I think. Right as right as the the world went into into quarantine, that is when my book launched into into the world. Uh -huh. So so everyone grabbed a copy and just wrapped a shawl around themselves and read it because they had nothing else to do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's just start with, um, like, what is the wedge when, you know, you, you, you capitalize it throughout the book. It has mm -hmm. a, a, a series, I think, of sort of Russian nesting doll meanings. But, uh, when mm -hmm. you started writing, what were you writing about? So the easiest way, and, you know, and obviously I wrote a whole book with the title of the wedge. So the real answer is just read the book, but <laughs> the easiest way to think about it is, um, it, it, it's how to separate, you know, the stimulus from response. So when you feel something, when that thing is coming in from outside the world and you feel it, you have this moment of choice. Uh, and, you know, I did not invent this idea. Many people have been saying there's a space between stimulus and response. Um, but what the wedge is, is that is, is one technique for how to use that, uh, that stimulus, how mm -hmm. to get control of it and add choice to stimulus and response. And that when we do this, we're reprogramming essentially some, some very um, fundamental uh, aspects of who we are as people, some fundamental aspects of consciousness. Uh, because usually these things coming from out, the outside world, you can think of them as stresses. And now we usually think of stresses as negative, but there are positive stresses too. Uh, and no matter what comes in, that might be the objective reality that's coming into you, but you always have a choice in how you respond to that, which is why, you know, one person uh, sees a, a firework in the sky and they're like, wow, that's the most amazing thing in the world. And the other person sees it and like, oh my God, I have to go hide. Mm. <laughs> uh, the, it's not the firework that, that creates that, that, that response. It's the person and their history and how they choose to respond. Right. And so I think what I love most about this book is that, as you said, it's a very, very common thing. Like between, you know, I think Viktor Frankl famously said between right. the stimulus and the response is, you know, is your choice. And in that choice lies your freedom. And the problem is that people take a very cognitive view of that that makes people feel bad for not exercising that choice. Right. When, mm -hmm. in fact, they have, we have no tools to. So, mm -hmm. you know, I work with people on a daily basis who are trying to eat better. 
who are trying to get up in the morning and exercise, who are trying to sit down and meditate, who are trying to not lose their temper at their kids, and they mm -hmm. keep doing it, even though they know there is a space between the stimulus and the response. Right. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you're actually exploring tools that we mm -hmm. can use and practice to regain that power that, mm -hmm. that most of us have lost to, right. to some degree. Right, and this is because, you know, what the, um, when we think about that, you're, you're, you're sort of the lay understanding of this. There's a, you know, the, that, thing, that kid gets, gets, says something bad and then I get angry, right? And there's, there's this automatic reaction. We think, oh, we should have a, a way to insert ourselves to respond smarter. That is all cognitive, right? That's all like the thoughts of your brain moving. But where I'm really inserting myself in this book is at the sensation level, right? Is that it's, it's not your actions, it's actually your automatic bodily responses give rise to sensations. And that's really where I'm looking at. Because it's not just the kid says something and then you react because the kid said that thing. It's because that kid said that thing and that made you feel something. Um, you know, whether it is anger, whether it is uh, irritation, whether it is something. And, and what, I'm, what I'm showing is that if we, uh, we put you in stressful physical situations um, of, of varying sorts, whether something that gives you fear, maybe something very hot, maybe something very cold, something very visceral. Um, those are sensations that then you learn to control yourself in that no novel and novel environment, which demands your attention. And once you start to master that, once you can sit and say an ice bath for three or four minutes uh, and, you know, not freak out that is, that you're actually modulating your emotions. You're modulating your sensations in that ice bath. And this is what gives you that emotional resilience when your kid yaps at you. So, you know, it, rather than blaming the victim, which is what usually happens here, right? You know, the kid, the kid yapped at me and I just wasn't able to insert myself. Uh, the tools I'm giving are, are at a neurological level, at a sensory level, and we're training, you know, the lowest parts of the brainstem about reaction. Right. Because one of the things I learned when I studied stress was that one of the uh, effects of fight or flight is that your neocortex is downregulated and your limbic system is upregulated. So precisely when you want to insert that cognitive pause and say, well, I'm a bigger person than this, mm -hmm. right? Your limbic system is, is basically scanning the environment in terms of everything is fight it, run away from it, mate it, or eat it. Yeah. And so, That's interesting. You say that the brain, um, it, it can be upregulated and downregulated in different um, ways or different different places. You, know, you said the neocortex is upregulated and the limbic is downregulated. How does that work? Because I've never heard that before, oh, and that well, sounds in, interesting. Yeah, well, in, in stress, like you know, the the, the classic is the saber toothed tiger, right? right? You want to move quickly and instinctually. Mm -hmm. In the limbic system, you know, based with the hypothalamus and the and the pituitary, getting a signal from the amygdala is like mm -hmm. you know, become the animal that you need to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's not about long-term goals or strategic. Oh, and so, mm -hmm. so just precisely when, so as you know, in terms of blaming the victim, we te if I teach you, look, Scott, here's how you should respond. Take a deep breath, count to 10. Mm -hmm. That part of your brain is offline. Right. So right. The stuff you're talking about, and I've done some of it, but not nearly to the mm -hmm. extent that you have and that you mm -hmm. talk about and the people that you feature in the book, mm -hmm. but you know, even like training myself to hold my breath, and then recover mm -hmm. with 
relaxation in mind means that like the other like uh, a while back i started falling downstairs and okay. you know like falling downstairs is like potential death like that's bad you know, right yeah. you want to you want to do all the wrong things you want to tighten up freeze mm -hmm. and instead i found myself without trying like <sighs> right and i caught myself and it wasn't a choice it was through neurological training right Right. Uh, that's fascinating. I, mean, I just hadn't heard um, that, that use of downregulated and upregulated. I think I would use different terminology. But what uh -huh. you're essentially saying is that one part of the brain becomes dominant. Yes. Right? The limbic system takes over. Right. Um, and, I, and I guess actually the way you phrase it does make sense. It's just not the way I've done it in the past. Uh -huh. um, and, and yeah, what we're, what we're trying to do is train that limbic system because it, and so for people who are not aware of what the limbic system is. It's essentially the, the heart of it, your emotional heart, but it's also your lizard brain, right? And it controls two big things. And it's where our reactivity comes, where your brain is not thinking. These aren't the word areas of the brain. This is the, I feel something primal side of the brain. And, you know, more often than not, humans work in the limb. Like, we're still lizards, honestly. Like, look at Twitter. We're still lizards. Um, we're, we're, liter we're lizards with words. Um, and, and that... It controls so much of our behavior, but it's not the sort of behavior that you identify as I, right? It's not that uh, the, the, when you tell the story of yourself, that's your neocortex going. Mm -hmm. But when you're reacting, you know, to things, that's your limbic system when you're, when you feel something strong. So, you know, our, our brains are super fascinating. And, and what I'm trying to get people to understand is that, that that limbic system is you, but it needs a, it has a different set of grammar, um, you know, because its words are emotions, its words are feelings, and it, it, it's not. It's like talking to a cat. I don't know if you have a pet, right? But, <laughs> but I I look at my cat I, all the time, and I'm like. I, I can try to communicate with you. I can call your name and it actually comes, right? But, but you know, it meows and I'm like, what the hell are you saying? But I realize that it's all emotions. Like the only thing, it doesn't have the neocortex. It can only communicate with emotions, but we can have a relationship. And we're trying to do that. We're trying to create a relationship with the cat of your own brain, the hmm. limbic cat. <laughs> uh, that's a, a, great, a great metaphor. Um, and one of the things that you've discovered is that we have we can develop control and at least, at least interactions and communications with parts of our body that most of my mainstream science thinks are completely right. autonomic. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, we have these things where we, um, you know, with so my earlier book, which is called What Doesn't Kill Us, uh, I learned, how, I hung out with this guy named Wim Hof, who's the Iceman, dunks himself in cold water, and then raises his body temperature in the water to like, be fine with it, right? And that's the, the, the real short version of that, of that book. Um, but what he showed, and, and what, what I showed through that, you know, my 10 years of working with Wim, was that, you know, you can actually get control of things like your autonomic nervous system, you could, you know, things like your immune system, uh, because um, the outside world has certain triggers, right? That things that come in from the outside world make your body do something. And, and the classic example is ice water. So you jump into ice water and you're going to vasoconstrict, which means the, um, the arteries in your extremities are going to contract and shunt um, blood to your core. Now, that's not something you can consciously do. I can't just think I'm going to, to shunt blood to my core usually, right? But I know that if I put myself in ice water, it will do that. So so there's two thoughts here. First, I can control that, that um, stimulus of, of, of vasoconstriction by, 
by consciously putting myself in ice water. So now I am using sort of this virtual remote control for my body. But then once you start doing this a lot, you realize that there's sensations that go along with um, being in that ice water, both emotional and physical. There's things going on in your hands. And that if you can duplicate those sensations in your mind, you can sort of recreate, you can sort of like find the back channel in to that autonomic hardware. Uh, and that was the fascinating thing about, about me hanging out with Wim Hof for years. And you know, I did crazy things. I climbed up Mount Kilimanjaro in a bathing suit. I did it really fast. It was negative 30 degrees outside. It was cool. Um, and so the, the way the, the wedge, this book sort of originates, is that I'm trying to find those things. I'm going to try, try that miracle that I found in ice water in every sensation that we have. Uh, mm. and, uh, and, you know, to varying degrees, I'm successful. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it's something that I'm still very much learning. I'm still very much a student of this. Uh, mm. But, you know, there's really cool, cool ways to sort of remote control your body where you don't have intentional conscious control over something. But if you know that action A leads to automatic, autonomic reaction B, then you get result C, you know, you can sometimes go from A to C directly. All right. Well, it's, you know, it's like when uh, you first like play a pinball machine or something like you don't, you, you have to learn that your actions, you know, there's a black box that can become less and less opaque the more right. experience you have with it. Right. So, so I want to tell you the, the, the one insight that I've gotten from the book that I'm using with clients already, like within minutes oh, cool. of reading it, nice. which is the concept that you can decouple sensation from meaning. Right. And emotion. like, for, yeah, the, the, and people are like, I'm describing it, you know, poorly, because I just read it, and I haven't really, um, you know, lived it so much yet, but people are already finding that incredibly profound and liberating. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. So what you're talking about is what I call a neural symbol. And this is the grammar that your limbic system uses. It's, a, it's sort of the big concept in the book. And I got this from hanging out with neuroscientists at Stanford and at Wayne State University. And the, essentially, your, you know, your brain, you know, you think this is the seat of consciousness. It's, it's in your skull, right? And, and the only way it knows anything about the world uh, is through your sensory system, which means that that, uh, you know, it's essentially sitting in a float tank, right? There's no, your brain doesn't directly sense anything. And yet that's where consciousness lies. And so what happens, um, I like to use an example of a sensation that we can all sort of agree on exists and we can all sort of be familiar with. And I, I like to use ice water um, because you can think about what, how horrible ice water is to jump into right now, right? It's clenching. It's like, no, why would I do that? So you have this sensation. Well, let's talk about the very first time that you, that, and this is a hypothetical because this actually can't exist, but let's say you were just born and you have no prior experiences and you're going to be dumped into ice water. How does that work uh, from a consciousness standpoint? So this, this hypothetical being gets dumped in ice water. And the first thing that happens is the nerves in your extremities fire, right? So it, it comes on your hand. And it's like, oh, no, strong signal. But it doesn't know what it means. It's just a signal. And it rockets through your nerves into your spinal cord, up that central channel, into the lowest area of consciousness in your brain, which is the limbic system. You know, it's literally at the bottom of your brain. That's the closest part to the spinal cord. This is where the consciousness, uh, conscious experience starts. And I like to think of the limbic system as like a library. It is, uh, in a way, the emotional center of 
of, of humans, of all of our primary emotions, like fear, joy, lust, hunger, like that's all in the limbic system. And it comes in and, and, and the, every library has a librarian. So she sees this signal come in. She's like, whoa, what's that? And she looks at all of the other sensations that she's ever felt in the world. But remember, this is a hypothetical person that has never really had a prior experience and the shelves are empty. And she says, oh, well, I don't know what this means. So she kicks it over to the book binder, right? And this is the paralympic system. It's like a centimeter away. And this is, this is really the, the heart of the emotions. Um, uh, this is where our emotions are, uh, um, um, are, like, I guess, exist, are felt. And, what, and the, the book binder looks, gets this signal from the limbic librarian and says, okay, it was just, it just raw data coming to me. And he says, well, I'm going to assign it meaning by, by listing my current emotional state and attaching it to that data and then kicking it back down to the limbic librarian. So your emotional state at this point is unmitigated horror and terror. That was the automatic reaction from the ice water. Uh, and, and so unmitigated terror and horror goes to ice water, kicks it down to the Olympic library, and she says, oh, cool. Now I know what that sensation means. And she puts it on the shelf. And then you go out, go through with the whole ice bath thing. Now, the next time you feel that sensation, um, it's, you know, the next time you jump into the ice bath, the, limbic, the, 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 the data comes in from your peripheral nervous system, goes up your spine, goes into the library, and the limbic librarian says, oh, I felt this before. This is that book that I have on the shelf. She pulls it off and says, it's unmitigated horror and terror. And, and then you go about your business. And what this means is that when you experience anything for the second time, you're living in your emotional past. You don't have the opportunity to reassess what it means. You're just sort of like in, in where you were before. So, uh, and this is the neural grammar of every bit of consciousness that is in our human brain. Because, you know, you can think of it like the brain as like a, as, uh, as hardware and this stuff as software, her library of software and the neural symbols are the bits and bytes that make up the vast computer program of human consciousness. And when you have billions of emotions and sensations linked together, you start to have something like human consciousness. Um, but we need to realize that at, at the very most fundamental level, everything you feel is subjective based on prior experiences and that prior, you know, primary um, uh, reaction that you had. Now, what we're trying to do with the wedge is, is sort of change the rules of the game so that when, that's, when you jump into ice water, you say to yourself, you sort of force an emotion. You don't allow emotion to arise. You start with a new emotion. You say, this is joy. I'm going to sit in here and it's joy and it's relaxation and I'm great. And so that the, the librarian has to be like, wait, this date is funny. And then she kicks it over to the, 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 the bookbinder person. He says, cool, well, I'll just make a new neural symbol. So then you have, as you build up the shelf of books that you, then you're able to, that that library is able to pull from. And this is how we recreate um, the, uh, or this is how we influence our future emotions. Mm -hmm. So it's like for, you know, for the person who hates running or physical exertion, right? They, what, they're, what they are experiencing in the moment, in the now, is just pure sensation, right? right? It's a shortness of breath. It's a heart pounding. It's, uh, it's water streaming from the temples. And he, mm -hmm. it has no 
in, it has no objective meaning. It's just right. how it's connected to the, that, to what they have felt in the past. Mm-hmm. And so, and so for, you know, people are often like, well, I don't like running or I don't like eating vegetables or I hate bland food or sure. whatever. And they think those are, you know, either genetic or mm-hmm. life sentences. And what you're saying is with, with, a, with a, a fair effort of consciousness, you can reassign different emotional states, different valences to right. the physical sensations. And so you can have, you know, you can get what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you need to experience those sensations, you can actually recode them as positive. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you could recode them as whatever you want. Like, this is like the, this is the fundamental grammar. You could recode them as horror if you wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. You can recode them as whatever you want. But essentially, since we, since our goal is, is it to be happy, healthy, and strong, right? These are the things mm-hmm. we want. Um, you, could, you can encode, uh, you should be encoding positive messages. Now, in some ways, this can get into like that hokey power of positive thinking stuff, which I buy because, you know, you have a positive mindset, things are going to feel better for you. Um, but you still need reason here, right? And, and the danger of the wedge is that there's no objective meaning to it, right? You can, you can, there are negative wedges, there are positive wedges. This is just the way that we work. And you have to be smart about it because the reason why we have higher consciousness, the reason why we have the neocortex is to make decisions about our environment that our autonomic system is not qualified to do, right? You know, the, the, our autonomic system is like, oh, ice water is always death because it just goes right to death. And it's <laughs> like, so forget this. I don't want to die. So I'm not going to do this. And, and it's your neocortex who actually says, all right, listen, limbic system. You're not, you're not the one driving this boat. I am. Mm. And, I, and we're going we're gonna to give you a, a different way to think about it. But it doesn't mean that you should train yourself to go sit in fires and be like, oh, fire is great, right? I, I love fire, right? So there, there, there is this sort of balancing act that we need to do. We need to use the best parts of our human reasoning abilities and then question our innate emotions, but don't just discount them because that, that's what madness is. So there's a lot of things that we're trying to sort of like keep tabs on as we go. Mm. So I just had a thought and I'm going to check it with you because I've never had the thought before. And like, you know, that's rare. Like mostly I just have the same thoughts over and over again. Is that like the limbic system and the way you describe it is like, you know, ice water is, is terrible as death because it's increasing the body's need to expend energy to return to homeostasis. So so the thought is, like if the limbic system, all stress is negative, something to be avoided and overcome, whereas the neocortex is actually, actually thrives on certain types of stress. Well, the limbic system has two states that it, that it sends out, right? We have, we have fight or flight, which is the, oh my God, you're going to die. So you better do something about it, body. And we also, it also has the rest and digest side of things too. So it has the, oh no, we're safe. We're fine. I mean, it's really like talking to a cat. Um, it's got both sides of, of things, the total relaxation and satiation. And then the alternate, which is like, oh my God, we got to take an action right now. And the neocortex gives us the ability to decide whether those innate reactions are accurate, right? You know, you know, look at my, I don't know why I'm using my cat all the time. I usually don't just talk about my cat, but you know, my a dump truck comes down the street and my cat like, poof, like blows up. It's like, oh my God, imminent death, right? And, uh, and it still does it like, like 
five, four years later, it's still like, oh my God, I'm in a death. And luckily we have a neocortex and we may have had that sensation at one point, um, but we don't anymore. Uh, however, I guess some people with PTSD might have um, bonded like the sound of a large vehicle meandering down the road as imminent deaths. Let's say they were a soldier in Afghanistan, a bomb went off and there was a sound similar to that before that could actually trigger panic as well. And that's sort of a, in a way, a negative wedge. Right. Well, there's also, you know, negative wedges, you know, like for, from people who survived 9-11 in New York. It was, I was in New York mm -hmm. on that day. It was the most beautiful day ever, right? It was a warm, late summer day. Birds were singing, sun was shining, breeze was blowing, and all of a sudden, kaboom, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are people who then, like one, right. one, one trick mm -hmm. learning and associate mm -hmm. nice weather being outdoors right. with imminent death. Totally, totally. And this is one, one of the really cool chapters where I talk about flotation tanks later, is that we, if, we, if we want to use the 9-11 example, and incidentally, I was actually downtown 9-11 when it happened. I was shooting for a, a, a newspaper at the time. And um, the, uh, you have this sort of peaceful, wonderful day, and, and you're bonding neural symbols all the time. Look, I'm happy. Look, there's a, a, a someone selling tea and there's a there's a fruit stand. Oh, cool. Right. And then boom, big traumatic event occurs. And all of those pleasant moments get bonded with the full the full on negative experience of the trauma. And oftentimes uh, what will happen is that the trauma occurs and then you dump all this adrenaline into your system, right? So you go right into fight or flight. And then your heartbeat just starts thumping like crazy, like boom, 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 because you're trying to survive. This is like the normal human reaction. And then you bond, it's, it's in many cases, people's first awareness of their heartbeat is in a traumatic situation. Mm. And, and, uh, and then later, you know, two years later, you have, you know, you're well outside the danger zone. And um, we're always sensing our bodies. We're always sensing our breath, even if we're not consciously aware of it. And your actual heartbeat can trigger a panic attack. Uh, and so where this stick comes into the wedge is that I hung out with this guy, um, uh, Justin Feinstein at the Tulsa, the Laureate Institute for Brain Research, where he put people into flotation tanks, which is like what we used to think of as sensory deprivation. You know, you're in salt water uh, and you, you feel very, very little in this environment. And he put all of these people with PTSD, severe PTSD in the flotation tanks. And what happens there is you, that the external environment is so quiet that you start being aware of your internal environment. You hear your heart, you hear your breath. Uh, I hear the creaking of my ancient joints. You know, I hear all of this stuff and, and you become aware of your body and in a positive and safe environment because the float tank it, you should better, it better be a safe float tank, right? You better have a good positive experience going into the float tank. And then you're creating new neural symbols. And what he saw is that all of these people with PTSD and severe depression um, afterwards were suddenly aware of their heart and their breath in a positive way. And, and they had significantly reduced symptoms of, of, uh, of depression and PTSD afterwards that, that retained that way for a month after just a one hour float. And it's because we've, we've added more books to their neural library. Mm -hmm. and, and again, doing it on a physiological basis rather than right. what, you know, a talk basis, right? Where right. The, the thoughts are still floating untethered to the body that's, you know, because all these things, anxiety, depression, PTSD, mm -hmm. they're, they're physical events. Right. 
and they get, and, you know, because we're thinking speaking creatures, we, we attach another right. layer to them, but the, but the, the meta layer isn't where they originated and it's not where we can typically heal them. Right, exactly. And your thoughts, the thoughts you're thinking right now are all built on that grammatical structure of the neural symbols, right? Like my, I could never have thought I would go talk with you on a Zoom call if I hadn't, you know, my sensory system hadn't sent the information to me that what is a Zoom call in the very first place. And, uh, and so then if you think about cognitive therapy, you know, you're sitting with Freud, you're on that couch and Freud's talking to you. Yeah, he, you will be able to get therapeutic um, work out of that. There's nothing wrong with talk therapy, but they have to use the, the, all of these symbols that have already been created um, in order to sort of like reverse engineer your anxiety away rather than going straight to the basis of the sensations that create those neural symbols. Right. Well, you know, I'm staring at my, at my computer screen while we're talking and I'm thinking about the difference between, you know, a WYSIWYG interface and mm -hmm. the, the, the compiler language and the, mm -hmm you know, the operating system code that I've never, ever seen. Right. And, you know, if I did see, I would like, you know, hands off, don't touch this. Yeah, right. right? I just messed everything up, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I, I mean, it, it is truly fascinating to try to sort of dig into these sort of fundamental human experiences. Uh, and luckily, humans are pretty resilient. Like, you can put us under stress and, you know, even intense stress, and we can come out relatively intact um, mm -hmm. in most cases. It's just because we, we evolved to be reasonably resilient to almost mm -hmm. everything that's out there. Yeah, although I, I want to challenge that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that I, that, um, I kind of wanted to get into around the book, which, sure. which will make sense later. But it feels to me like we are really well evolved to be resilient in community, not as individuals. And you know, at the beginning, you talk about, you know, we, I'm going to quote on page three, humans love comfort to the point of absurdity. We're living in a world thoroughly tamed by technological bliss. And like when you went seeking this kind of wedge healing, you went to ancient communities or people mm -hmm. who have learned from shamanic tribal communities that it's... Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you, you talk about one of the things you talk about is like kettlebell juggling. So right. mm -hmm. I've never done that, but I have, I've been a juggler for mm -hmm. a while. And I, when I started learning, I was in London and there was, uh, this was in the eighties and there was a, a gym where all the jugglers would go on Sunday, on Saturday to practice. And these were some of the best jugglers in the world. These are the people who would who could make a living traveling around different European capitals. And so occasionally I would get up the nerve to ask someone to pass clubs with me. Mm -hmm. And I was terrible at it, but I became really good at it when I worked with the best, jug the best club juggler in Europe. Every, mm -hmm. you know, and it felt like I was by myself not resilient, but in a system that was able to contain and knew how to heal me. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering about like the source of our resilience being greater than ourselves. Well, there's a lot of ideas in there and I could take this a lot of different directions. Um, I, the way I, I like to think about human consciousness, right? Well, who are we as people? Uh, you know, in America, 
we like to think of the, the uh, exceptional individual, right? We, we like to think that who I am stops with me. This is why I want freedom, right? And it's, it's very like me focused. And there's a certain school of thought, at least in America, that's very popular, that you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you're fully responsible for your own um, actions. Uh, and your own results. It's usually the results, not, not, not just the actions. Um, I take a sort of a different bent on this, which is that we are who we are because of all of the inputs, all of the reactions, all of the interactions we've had with other people through, and, and things and objects and cats, of course, um, throughout our entire life. You know, and, and, and I quote at the beginning of the book, Alan Watts, who's this um, just epic Buddhist uh, out of California. And he said, he sort of put this to the absurd level. He said, who would you be without the sun? You know, let's take this to the absolute biggest thing. And then the sun is this giant ball of burning hydrogen. I don't believe it has a soul, but maybe it does. Uh, and it's sitting out there and it's burning hydrogen. But we would never have existed were, were it not for all of the history, the geology, all of the interactions that, that created evolution and, and dinosaurs and the asteroid and all of that, all of those actions somehow have resulted in your body, your culture, your language, you know, who would you be without everything else in the world? And so the way I think of us is that, you know, I may experience the world as an individual who does things like writes books and, you know, yaps on podcasts, but, uh, but none of that would have been possible if I wasn't also part of the universe, if that universe was not giving me this feedback. So in that sense, when I, all of the books that I've ever done, all of the good things and the bad things I've done are really just an emanation of the overall system um, doing its thing. And you, and you wrote about having a sort of in a sense of that as you were at the top of Kilimanjaro with Wim, mm -hmm. where it's, it's something like, that the mountain and I were one, like, I wasn't, I didn't conquer the mountain. Like I had sort of become the mountain and the mountain had become me. Yeah, it was the cheesiest line I'd ever thought of my life, which is that I am not on the mountain. I am the mountain, right? And, you know, and whenever I say this, I, and the reason I wrote it in the book is because I'm like so embarrassed to say it because it sounds so hippie, so flighty, and I tend not to think of myself in those terms. But um, when you're, when I was, you know, so climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro, it's super cold. I'm super exhausted. I'm basically naked and, and I, I, under intense stress. And, and in that sort of breaking point, I realized that the reason I was successful at getting, you know, where I was, was because I was cooperating with the environment around me. And, you know, I, I, the, I let those sensations of cold flow through me instead of fighting it. And that's actually why I was resilient in that moment. And, and this is something that happens under uh, every day under various other, uh, um, scenarios is that, you know, when we, when I acknowledge or when we acknowledge that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, it actually lets us off the hook for our survival because our survival is sort of part of that system. And, and it, and it, and it, it's less damaging. Like if you think about Americans, right? We love grit, right? We love the soldier who was able to like trudge through the desert above all odds and he just pushed himself through and it didn't matter how much he hurt his body when he did it, he fucking did it, right? And, and, and that's the grit. And, there's, and you know, there, there's a reason for grit. I mean, grit's not bad, but I much prefer the idea of flow. 
which is where we're cooperating with things around us, where we're trying to like use those stresses like a, you know, like a Tai Chi master, like a martial arts master, and just use those forces to our benefits or guide it so that we're, you know, instead of fighting, we're surfing. And, uh, and that's what we can do with all of our sensations and is like when a sensation comes in, you can be like, this sensation is horrible and I must resist it at all costs. And there are sensations where you want to do that. If like an ax murderer is chasing you. Yeah. Resist him at all costs. <laughs> Don't let the ax in. But in most cases, there are these moments of choice where you're like, okay, that's bad. But maybe if I just move this way, it's going to be all right. You know, and, and, and that's what we're trying to do. All right. And a bunch of times in the book, you use the phrase like we are a super organism. Right. And so a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a gastroenterologist who was talking about the latest research on the gut microbiome and mm -hmm. its you know, ability to like tell us what, you know, make us crave things. So it get right. what, what it wants. And you had Love this it. chapter that I just found fascinating about the macrophages, which are the big mm -hmm. eaters in our right. immune system that go around gobbling up bacteria and, you know, you say this is not what science believes and maybe they need to rethink it, but they have a consciousness. Yes. Right. So, yeah, I was I was hanging out in a so I took an immunology course a few years ago when I was writing this book um, at CU Boulder. I had the opportunity to just sort of hang out and take some college classes for a while. So I took it and and uh, and. And immunology is fascinating. The immune system is like ridiculously complex. And, you know, some of it goes over my head because we're talking about like receptors and different types of receptors, different chemical shapes. And I'm like, whoa, that's really crazy. And the way the, 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 the um, teacher, the professor talked about it was like everything was automated. It's like a machine, like this key fits over there and these just go together. And then, you know, the, 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 immune cell, like a T cell or a B cell, um, is able to kill the virus and move on. So he had this very like, sort of like, we are a machine, there's no soul here. And then he shows this photo of a macrophage, which is, a, which is called the big eater. It's, it's like one of your general immune cells that goes around and just does a lot of work for us. And it's, it's going around and I'm watching it like poke at different cells. That's a platelet, that's a, you know, that's a red blood cell, oh, bacteria. And then it, and it goes and eats it. I'm like, that thing is hunting, man. That thing's hunting. And, and I just had a very different impression of what was going on. And then he said something that blew my mind, which was yeah, the macrophage is morphologically identical to an amoeba. And I was like, wait, what? Right. And so morphologically means it looks like, acts like it is basically the same thing as an amoeba. An amoeba is a thing that's outside in the world, like it's doing its thing. But the macrophage is basically an amoeba that works for you, right? <laughs> that, that it's doing work for you. And it came, comes from your DNA to create it. And yet, if you actually look at the literature, there's, there's a fair amount of literature out there saying that the amoeba and the macrophage are related genetically. So how that happens, you know, you, you think about um, you know, our cells have mitochondria and that mitochondria come from, out, from, from outside the body. They were sort of independent living organism. And then eukaryotes, that's, we're essentially a very complex eukaryote. Um, you know, we have eukaryotes in us, brought the mitochondria in and joined two organisms to make like a super, a mini super organism that is like all cells that have energy in it. And that's where we come from eventually. And, and it's the same thing with the amoeba though. Like we, we create these, these creatures inside of us that go around and they do stuff on uh, our behalf. And the, when I was climbing up say Mount Kilimanjaro, right? Here's where the superorganism idea comes in. 
I climbed up there and I had all of these things in my gut my microbiome that were giving me energy. You know, they're breaking down carbohydrates and doing their stuff that they just usually do. And they knew that as I went up the mountain, I, um, I don't know what hormones I was secreting, but they were stress hormones. There's probably adrenaline, there's some cortisol, there's some other stuff going through me and, and going through my entire system. And those creatures in me, right? Those bacteria, those uh, uh, microbiome, all that stuff responded to that environment, that new chemical hormonal environment that I gave them by, you know, by creating more energy or doing various other things so that my body was the lens through which they experienced Kilimanjaro. So I like to think of these like sort of nested worlds. So all the while, you know, Scott, conscious Scott is influenced by his mother and his friends and of course his cats and all of these other things and education and whatever. My, my, the stuff inside of me, it, it also has to experience that world through the experiences that I transmit to it through chemical and secretions and, and whatnot like that. Right. And you can think like, uh, okay, so it's, you can explain the macrophages um, activity and choice, you know, based on, you know, chemical reactions and sure. But you can also say there were macrophages that, that ate platelets and red blood cells and they killed their hosts and they didn't survive. Just the right. way you could say there might've been a, uh, you know, a bunch of humans who went around and, you know, some species that's our ancestor that tried to eat rocks, mm -hmm. right? Like they just didn't make it because <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. That, that that it doesn't just because they have a, a program like we have a program, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the one of the operational uses of this, like, OK, Scott, you're talking about a, 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 a super organism who cares. Right. Mm -hmm. Is when we talk about autoimmune illnesses. Right. So we have a plague of autoimmune issues going on. Um, uh, especially in the first world, less in the third world, interestingly enough. And the. This is essentially your immune system, those macrophages, right, going out and other cells attacking the stuff that they shouldn't be attacking, uh, uh, such as your joints in rheumatoid arthritis or your intestinal lining with um, uh, colitis. Uh, Crohn's. And, uh, Crohn's, sorry, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Um, and, and, uh, and your mylar sheath for multiple sclerosis. These, these, these autoimmune illnesses, which are all over the places. And if you think about your immune system as predators, right, as these things out there trying to go kill the bad guys, um, we live in a world where we have so few external threats that, um, that our threats are really sort of psychological in many ways, right? You know, I, I don't fight lions on the savannas anymore. Now I look at my computer, I'm like, oh God, do I have to do these edits? But I'm still dumping adrenaline into my system, but I don't have a physical output for it. And that's super important. In general, we are denizens of comfort, but we still have these paleolithic bodies. But what happens when you dump adrenaline in your system? Don't give that adrenaline away to, to, to use the energy that you've created because usually our threats needed physical responses in the past, right? But now we're just sitting at my desk and all it just turns inward. Now all of that chemical energy, um, hormonal energy is swirling around and your immune system is caught up in it. And, and you just hopped up all of these wolves on adrenaline. It's like meth, right? You put these wolves on meth and <laughs> what are they going to do? They're going to start chewing on freaking everything. And and what these methods do 
is when I put myself in like an ice bath, for instance, or a, or a breath work session or a sauna or something else, I'm giving my external body a physical stress to deal with, where that adrenaline and the, the, those other things can be used appropriately. And it's like giving those wolves, those on methed up wolves, chew toys, so they have something else to chew on. And we see then lots of remission of various autoimmune illnesses um, with things like the Wim Hof method. And there's actually really good science behind the Wim Hof method and autoimmunity, but I think we see it in lots of these things. Um, of course, it's very hard to get like a, a true gold standard billion dollar pharmaceutical grade study out there. But, but, we're, but I've seen at least anecdotally and the science that does exist is incredibly promising. Um, you know, I've had a remission of my own autoimmune illnesses after doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. So that, that brings me to um, something that happened after you wrote the book, which is, of course, the COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, specifically around immunity, but in general, like it feels like your book has never been more relevant. Um, and I wonder if, if you've been thinking about these concepts in terms of what everyone is going through and experiencing and arguing about now. I have thought about it a lot and I try not to weigh, on, weigh in on it too much because you know we're at, at the crux between um, our consciousness as a super organism and our consciousness as individuals. And you know, while there are wedges in our nervous system that we can use to do things, there are also wedges that we use in our society. And in general, American society, and I know I'm going to drastically simplify this, but in general, our society has been very comfortable, right? We have not had um, a lot of stresses. And of course, I'm thinking of all, all the racial stuff that's going on in the world. So I know I'm wrong in a lot of cases, but go with me here for a moment. Um, we've been sort of in a status quo moment for a very long time where we're like, okay, it's going to be all right. We're just going to stay the course and things are going to be all right. And yet now we're at an inflection point where everything is in play, right? Where everything is hard and we're, 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 you know, in some cases we're fighting in the streets and in some cases we're sort of like hunkered down in our bunkers and everything is difficult out there in the world right now. But I think one thing that's definitely going to come out of this is change, right? Is because what happens in the body when you're under stress is that you force a change in your body and you have some ability to navigate that change and hopefully for the beneficial, hopefully it's for a positive wedge. And what I think we're going to see in society is that while we're in a difficult place right now, it's also giving us this choice on how we respond. Now, it could go either way, right? It could go really well. It could go really bad. I do not know how it's all going to turn out, but I do feel like there's an opportunity now to sort of, you know, because we have this reflection in front of us, because we see the stakes um, that are up against us, whether it's civil strife or economic collapse or all of these things, you know, there is at least this, this hope that we're, we're going to, to use our, our, our super organism neocortex to pull, our, pull through a more positive direction. Mm, love it, love it. Um, so two of the other things I really wanted to ask about is the... Um, biochemical underpinnings of depression and anxiety, which you, which you identified in the book in ways that I've never thought of before. Mm -hmm. I don't know how strong the science is. I do know that I love a good story. And so I'm like, yes, he's right. This, this makes perfect sense. Could you talk about like, you know, like the inflammation, depression and CO2 anxiety links? Because I think they offer real, sure. again, really interesting ways into pretty intractable problems for people. 
So, um, sorry, the first one was, was, was depression and you said inflammation and depression, right? Yeah. So, so the, this, this um, evolves from the chapter on saunas where I'm talking about the relationship between, cause I did a one book on cold, right? And so mm-hmm. in this book, I addressed heat. What happens when we put ourselves under um, intense heat and then control ourselves? And it turns out that every indigenous tradition around the world, ever, sorry, every circumpolar indigenous tradition has something like a sauna or a sweat lodge and there's different words for it around the world and what they use these for oftentimes is not only just sort of like general health and well-being but also to alleviate depression and there's this really amazing um, research out by a guy named Charles Raison who's at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who uh, found these really fascinating links between body temperature and depression. So he, he, he did a huge statistical analysis of people who are depressed and he tried, and it's interesting, some people are depressed and anxious at the same time. So he had to actually just get the people who were depressed because the comorbid stuff makes it a lot more confusing. Um, but the people who were just depressed, who, had, who were diagnosed with just major depression, um, had higher body temperatures by like a degree than people who were not depressed. And he found that if you um, treat a person who is depressed uh, with SSRI, so ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, their body temperature goes down back to normal. So it sort of just, it just comes down. So he was like, well, what's this correlation? Why is there, why is there a connection between body temperature and, and depression? And so one way to think about body temperature is inflammation. I'm, I'm totally reducing some really complex science here. But, you know, inflammation is sort of like, tissue that's sort of more active. It's, it's being filled with, again, various stress hormones. It's, um, it's a survival instinct to help stabilize tissue, but it's also sort of like a, a simple that you're sick, right? You, you have inflammation, when, when you have a fever, you're also inflamed uh, in, this, mm. in this moment. So what he found is if you put somebody in a sauna who has major depression and you heat up their body temperature way over where it's supposed to go, um, you know, you, you might be running a you know, 104 in a sauna for a brief amount of time. Again, I have to stress brief because saunas can also be dangerous. Um, and then you come back down, the body temperature will actually reset to the normal temperature. And he found that that actually reduced people's depression at the same level as SSRIs. Uh, because, you know, it, it, it's sort of which, which do you want to do? Do you want to do the chemical change? you know, you want to dot drop that pill in your body and do whatever the SSRIs do, which I'm a little skeptical sometimes of what they do, um, or treat the, the, put the body, make it hot and have all these external triggers that actually create similar biological processes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we can go into, there's a lot more detail in the book for why that is. And he has a psychological explanation and a physiological explanation for how that works. Um, right. The other one is CO2, right? So anxiety essentially what anxiety is, is your fight or flight response triggering in your body and then not being able to deal with it. So, so when you're anxious, you're actually running more adrenaline in your system, uh, more cortisol, more of those stress hormones are are in your body and they don't have anywhere to go. Uh, Now with breath work, oh God, I don't know if we have time to go into this whole thing, but, but essentially when you, when you uh, do the Wim Hof method, which is like heavy breathing and then holding your breath, right? When you hold your breath, when you feel that urge to gasp, the reason you feel that urge that, mm, oh my God, I have to breathe is not because you have too little oxygen in your body. 
your body, for whatever reason, cannot detect oxygen. What it does detect is the um, existence of CO2 in your lungs and in, and in your bloodstream. So when you, when you sense um, CO2, you're, that's that, that anxiety moment where you're like, oh my God, I have to breathe. Now think about somebody who's having a panic attack. One of the things they say is I can't get enough air, I can't breathe. And so the CO2 is that thing that you're paying attention to. Uh, that, that, that might give you the panic attack, that might make you feel anxious. And we find that if people who are chronic mouth breathers, like me, I'm actually still a chronic mouth breather, right? You, you're actually always sort of hyperventilating, even if you're not thinking about it, because that holds the bigger hole. In nature, there's no animal that breathes out of its mouth primarily, right? Mm -hmm. If they have a nose, they breathe through their nose. Uh, and uh, and, and so that's the amount of air that you're biologically supposed to have. So if you breathe through your mouth all the time, you're sort of always have low CO2 levels, which means that if your CO2 levels build up for some reason, you didn't pay attention to your breath for a little while, that CO2 rises, you are going to feel anxious. You know, that anxiety is going to come in. So one way that we start to um, treat anxiety is, is teach breathing methods that build up resistance and resilience to high CO2 levels. Um, so, so, and there's various types of breath work that do this. The Wim Hof method does it in one way. And this guy named Brian McKenzie um, does it another way. There's also the oxygen advantage, Buteco method. There's all sorts of different ways. But essentially, if you're able to hold your breath and learn to hold your breath for a, a long period of time, you're going to be building up CO2. And that means you're naturally going to become less anxious in general because of that, which is crazy. You know, it's crazy that you would think that like breath work has anything to do with the, like your emotional state, but it does. Right. And I found that too. Cause I, you know, I started doing Wim Hof after reading what doesn't kill us. Mm -hmm. And like, it didn't make any sense that I was like, yeah, you know, I'm just calmer. I like, I'm less reactive. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, I do an ice bucket, you know, every morning. Um, oh, wow. I found, awesome. I found that those things are actually, they, you know, it's, it puts my bad behavior on a tighter leash than right. all the emotional. And I, you know, the emotional work has been important yes. in other ways in terms of like, you know, giving me meaning and purpose and connection to others. Right. But I've, like I've done emotional work before and it felt like not addressing the physiology was always like a rubber band snapping me back. Right. Mm -hmm. Like high CO2 would tell me you, you should be anxious, even if there was nothing in the external world to be anxious about. Right. And which is also why, you know, the advice immemorial where you, someone's getting angry and freaking out, you're like, dude, just take a deep breath. Right. Like <laughs> we all know that. Yeah. We all know it sort of works. Right. Take a deep breath. I mean, that's not a very intensive meditation, but it actually does work because what you're doing is you take a deep breath and you hold it in. You actually... Um, Initially, you'll have more oxygen in there, less CO2. So the saturation mixture is different. And that actually is calming. Um, you need to do more than just take a breath to really manage your emotions. But it's a great first step. And we all recognize it. Right. So we got, we got three minutes till you got to go. I do just want to mention that my favorite chapter of the book is, is the least dramatic. It's the potato chapter. And I was so happy <laughs> you added that. Because, you know, I have a, I have a buddy who... Um, who dealt with his food addiction by eating nothing but potatoes for an entire year. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> oh, awesome. That's so cool. <laughs> and, you know, he reversed his type 2 diabetes. And, like, there's all sorts of health benefits. But, mm -hmm. but what he said was, like, 
you can stop your alcohol addiction by not, not drinking. You can stop your cigarette addiction by not smoking. You can't stop your, your food addiction by not eating. Right. And so the, the idea that, that something like, you know, so you're going off to saunas in Finland, you're going down to the Amazon to do ayahuasca with shamans, you're, you're having a big guy throw iron weights at you that you're supposed to catch and throw back, and then you have a potato. And I love how accessible that wedge is for people. Yeah. And it's, and honestly, it was the hardest because my wife does most of these things with me and she's actually the true hero of the book um, because she's like, yeah, so Scott's doing this crazy shit and I'm going to go with him. <laughs> um, um, but for her, it was the hardest. The potato was like the most challenging because she was like, I need different foods. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and for me, you know, but the, 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 the beauty of um, the potato hack, as they call it, is that it's a fast without hunger. You know, like, it, it, because potatoes are bland. And we're not talking French fries. We're talking potatoes, man. They can boil it. Maybe I'll let you put some salt on it. But that's it. That's all you get. And, and the, the potato is like, um, it's the most satiating food on the planet. Um, they've done studies. Uh, and, and so you're able to eat. You're also able to get enough nutrients uh, that you're not hungry. Uh, but it's super boring. So, you, the, so taste is sort of factored out of, of your environment. And, and you start to, to create a new relationship with food and with flavor. Because believe it or not, taste, that whole sensory system of taste had a, was important for our survival at one point, right? Important like, oh, oh, this berry, this is going to give me some nutrients so I can fuel whatever thing that I need to do. You know, if you think about the, the apocryphal story of the pregnant woman, it's like, Husband, I need pickles and three jars of peanut butter. I don't know what she wants, but yeah, you know, and these are random things. And I was like, why is that? Well, it's probably because her body's giving her certain messages, being like, we need these particular nutrients right now um, to, for the fetus. I don't know why pickles are important for fetuses, but apparently they are. And, <laughs> um, and uh, but nowadays in the modern world, you know, it's all of our tastes have been hijacked by. Um, the food industry, the, this, the marketing industry, you know, how can you go to a grocery store and look at a potato chip and it says, we're going to put a party on in your mouth. Like that's an emotion bonding with the sensation of flavor to create an emotional state in you. And, and they're all wedges. They're all using wedge techniques at sort of a, a little higher level than you might be thinking. Right. And, you know, from your wife's story, and I love that you talk about the potato because there's, there's an argument that it didn't really fit with mm -hmm. the with the other things like it's not like the others and yet i you know i've done you know ultra races i've run at um um what's that the high place in colorado i'm, I'm blanking on the name leadville speak oh, at, at leadville and so I'm, I'm in the presence of people who are total badasses mm -hmm. who will go through you know they do tough mutters they and yet they are such little babies when it comes to their food preferences yeah uh-huh <laughs> Yeah. Oh, totally. And, you know, I often think, you know, I, I try not to go too much into diet in my book. I think that it's real like diet should really be left to nutritional scientists. Because, um, you know, my, my idea is like, basically, you know, it's Michael Pollan's idea, you know, eat moderately, mostly plants, you know, be healthy, right. try to be healthy. That's my, my right. plan. Because I think that a lot of these 
and you'll, you'll see like Amelia Boone, who Amelia Boone's a, um, a world champion Tough Mudder uh, racer. She wrote the foreword in the book and she's been suffering from anxi- uh, anorexia for, for like her, since her teens. And one of the things she's saying is like, look, if you look at these high performing athletes, um, all of their strict diets, like a lot of this is just a disguise for an eating disorder, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like we got to go keto. We got to go, you know, just drink butter. We you know, we, they, like we have all these freaking fad diets out there. And, you know, while there is science behind a lot of it, I think there's also a tendency to disguise um, really, really unhealthy eating habits in, in, in the, the, with the, the clothing of like a wellness trend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I, I, I certainly know a few anorexics in my life um, who are like very much into food, right? They, they control every bit of food and they know exactly I need this, this thing and this is going to make me um, perfectly healthy. But you're like, no, you're killing yourself. So this is why I'm very careful about not going too much into that stuff in my books. Mm-hmm. But I do want people to be aware that sensation uh, of taste actually does have a physical output, like you, like a taste, like a strawberry is supposed to give you a certain type of energy. Um, you know, the pickle is supposed to give you apparently a great fetus. I don't know, but like, they're, they're like the, the, our sensory system was designed to actually sample the environment. And then that was supposed to translate into how our body was going to run. And that's not what's happening anymore. So if you eat just potatoes for a while, you factor out taste, um, then you slowly add things back in. You're starting yeah. to get the lens into what taste is really all yeah. about. Well, it's like the flotation tank for your taste buds. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I don't want to keep you anymore. Um, it's an amazing book, The Wedge. Um, and you read the audio book. I'm, I do. Yeah, that's that must have been fun. I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it, there's a great audio book through Audible um, and. Uh, yeah, if you, if you like the dulcet tones of my voice, you can go yeah. download it there. But it's also on like on my website. It's on Amazon. Okay. It's on and what's, what's your website? Oh, scottcarney.com. That's with a C. Okay. Cool. I'm going to ask you two, two questions. One of them is weird. The other one's cheesy, just to finish up. Um, weird question is, what, what's your D&D character? Because I... Uh, Oh, I love I was, it. I, I was I a D&D it. guy from the early 80s when, you know, girls mm-hmm. were a mystery and nerds uh-huh. would gather and roll dice. So, yeah, I, um, I, was, I DM'd a game, which is the Dungeon Master, for a, a long time, for like a year and a half most recently. So I was the, the guy in charge. Okay. Um, but I've most recently started playing um, with another friend of mine, a warlock, a half-elven warlock, but he's not telling anyone he's a warlock. He's actually, he's, sorry, he's telling them he's a wizard. Oh. <laughs> so he's, he's disguised. So, you're, <laughs> so the people you're playing with should not hear this podcast. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah. Right, I'll, so put I'll a bury warning it on in, iTunes. Put, put a warning, put a warning in there. They, should, okay. they can never know. <laughs> cool. And uh, the last question is when I started asking people, just because it's really fun, like what's some music that you like that you think most people haven't heard and might enjoy? Oh, that's a really good question. I've been listening to a ton of podcasts lately. So I, I, I have not, um, you know, the, the last musician that I acquired recently was a guy named Orville Peck, if you've ever heard of him. I have not. He is, Great. He is this flamingly gay cowboy from Canada, weirdly enough, who wears a mask, right? He wears like a, like a Zorro mask with like a lamp fringe. Uh, okay. And, but he sings like old school, uh, like Roy Orbison sort of stuff um, from like a queer perspective. It's super weird and awesome at the same time. Um, I, a friend of mine recommended him to me and I was like, wow, he's 
really awesome. But you should look him up on iTunes or at Orville Peck, O-R-V-I-L, there might be an E there, Peck, Peck. Um, and his photos are just wild. <laughs> awesome. All right, I'll, I'll find a good YouTube and, uh, and put that with the show notes. Awesome. And, uh, what are you working on now? You have another, are you another book or just doing... I am. I'm working on a, a couple things. My wife has a podcast coming out um, soon called Wild Things Season 2. That's um, the first search for Bigfoot? Right, right. She had one about the search for Bigfoot. And the next one is Aliens. Don't tell anyone I told you. Um, uh, and that comes out in September. We have another podcast. So I have this company called Fox Topus Inc. Um, with my wife. The other one is, a, it's called The Syndicate. It's about a huge pot bust that happened here in Colorado four or five years ago. And what that meant for interstate um, sales of marijuana. That's sort of cool. And I have a book that I'm working on that'll be out in 2021 uh, called The Vortex, which is about the deadliest uh, storm in human history that hit uh, what is now Bangladesh in 1970. Started a genocide, a, a, a revolution, a war, and almost brought the US and USSR into nuclear war. And, uh, oh. and no, most people have forgotten about this. It's called the Bola Cyclone. And, uh, and sort of, it's sort of an allegory for our climate change future, where as we face a future of, of more and more serious storms, because the world will heat up, that will actually create more convection and therefore more storms and more disasters, um, how that interacts with the political and uh, martial realities on the planet. It's been a lot of fun. Cool. Well, I, ho I hope to talk about it with you in 2021. <laughs> it sounds good, man. <laughs> All right, Scott, thank you so much for this amazing work, The Wedge. Everybody absolutely should, should get it and read it or listen to it. And uh, be well, man. Thanks again. All right. Thank you so much, Howard. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. So d definitely get this book. It's really well written. It's an easy read. It's fun. And the people he meets could change your life. So if you want to check out the show notes to uh, find out more about Scott's work, you can go to plantyourself.com slash 413. We also have the YouTube embedded there of our conversation. If you want to send Scott some love and let him know you heard about him on the podcast, you can tweet him at, at what? At twitter.com slash SG Carney, SG for George, Scott George Carney, SG Carney. And you can follow him on Twitter while you're at it. He's a good guy with lots of interesting perspectives. And speaking of interesting perspectives, next week on the podcast, I'm joined by the Scherzai's, Team Scherzai, Dean and Aisha, who are uh, neurologists. They're head of the, the something, the memory clinic, the uh, brain health clinic at Loma Linda University. You can see why I needed to talk to them uh, so urgently. Um, and we talk about... Uh, science, truth, whether it's okay to question vaccinations, whether it's okay to question the narratives on COVID-19, and about how we deal with racism. And, and they talk about it from their perspective as brain scientists. Like, where does racism come from in the brain? How is it a, a, a shortcut, an efficient shortcut, an unfortunate shortcut, to, to reduce complexity to simplicity, and also uh, from an evolutionary perspective, the importance of, of diversity and complexity to any species and to any ecosystem. So it's really seeing racism as, as a challenge to our entire species. You know, can, can we evolve to survive on this planet? 
And uh, you know, that's sort of the, the big question that we explore. So in garden news, it's been raining a lot ever since we put in that uh, automatic irrigation system. So I guess it worked. My neighbors will be thanking me as well. I'm going to see if they can, they can all chip in since I, uh, I created the conditions whereby their crops can grow without them having to get up and water early in the morning as well. Um, the first blueberries are in and we're starting to pick basil and lettuce and the soybeans are up and the buckwheat did very poorly, <laughs> did not, did not come up the second time that we planted it, but, uh, live and learn. In running news, um, I've been doing six milers. I started upping the pace about twice a week. So there's some slow ones. And on Sunday I did eight miles, but I walked the last three. But I think I'll be ready for races when real races start up again. I'm starting to feel better in my legs. And I've been studying with um, Danny and Catherine Dreyer on chi running. So I'm taking their coach training program. And so it's definitely helping my own running become less painful and more smooth and efficient. All right. So the thanks time. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don. The Dance of Peace is the theme music for this show. Find more at willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patron, the PPPPs, as in Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Flickenowski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colin Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sarah, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Drona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati. Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Heli Shalanis, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R, Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzanwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Olakoski, Plant Power for Health. Scott Morani, Karen Smith, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Nibbett, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fenny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cards, Dan Bishop, Bill Beer Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis. Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ayn Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashar, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gullage, Laura Heaton, Meg from Alma, Cesar, Shell Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Power Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, and Sagar Nayak for your for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.